Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Chapter 12 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear. Chapter 12 The Opinion of Mr. McClellan. The hostile look faded from the white clad woman's eyes and her face brightened. Oh, are you Mr. Rhodes? And the lady's brother? I am so glad you've come. Dr. Glynn is with her now, and I am sure he will permit you to see her at once, for she is still unconscious." Cleona was sunk in the depths of a death-like coma in which she might remain for many hours, and to rouse her from it by the use of powerful restoratives would mean probable insanity, possible death. This was Dr. Glynn's verdict, and it was confirmed by the specialist called into consultation that evening at Glynn's request. In the meantime, Rhodes and Cullen had learned all that could be known until Cleona's own story should be told, if that time were destined to come. They had talked with Marjorie and David. They had followed the same grim trail that Cleona had traced, and somewhat overtrodden now to the deep disgust of both detectives and themselves. By this time the crowd had dispersed and the place was lonely again. Cleona's menfolks had returned then to talk over the wreckage of furniture, and the splintered doors and floor. The bullet-holes and the empty pistol formed a phase of the silent tale that Blake and McClellan, the detectives, enlarged upon to the utmost. McClellan, the elder of the two plainclothesmen, was a large, stolid, matter-of-fact man, and he delivered his verdict in the tone of an ultimatum. Now, then, the possibilities are these. He ticked them off on the stubby fingers of his left hand. Number one, burglars. Nothing has been stolen, but that don't do away with the intent to steal. There may have been a gang of hobos, and they may have got in a fight, torn up the place, knifed each other, and finally been scared off by the pistol. Number two, a lunatic. I say one lunatic, because that sort don't generally hunt in couples. Number three, and number three, I may as well tell you, is the number I'm banking on as the most probable and the one that fits best that this whole business was done in the nature of a particularly horrid and vicious practical joke, carried out with elaborate care and directed not at Mrs. Rhodes, who they couldn't have known was alone here. "'A joke, is it?' snarled O'Hara, eyeing the stolid detective with intense disgust. "'A pretty joke it would be for a man to shed his blood by the bucketful and then vanish into thin air. Is it crazy you are?' McClellan flushed angrily. No, I ain't crazy. As for blood, how do you know all this red stuff is blood, and not some kind of red paint or something?" The detective continued. I've sent a sample of it in to be analyzed, but I don't believe it is blood at all. Crazy? Why, what kind of man or animal do you think could spill that much blood anyway? It would take an elephant with wings to get away afterward. A while ago, Mr. O'Hara, you suggested that some tiger or other wild beast might have escaped from a menagerie and broke its way in. There is nothing to bear that out except the claw marks, or rather, the apparent claw marks. Anyway, 
the beast that could bleed like that would be too large to get in an ordinary doorway. You've the right of it there, conceded O'Hara regretfully, for he had taken an instinctive dislike to the man and his cocksure way of speaking. By the look of him, he was a man of no imagination, and the type had no appeal for Cullen. You say, objected Rhodes, that the brute would have needed wings to disappear so completely. Might it have gone up above the down creek bed? Blake and me followed the creek pretty nearly a mile in both directions. There wasn't a sign on either bank. How far do you think a beast bleeding like that could get? It ain't even worth while to put dogs on it. Though, of course, if you say so, we might try bloodhounds. It won't be a particle of good, though. Whoever done this was human, and with all the other tracks that's been tracked around here, the bloodhounds ain't born that could pick up the trail. I tell you, this job was done by some crazy fool or fools with a grudge against Mr. Rhodes here. Why didn't the burglar alarm work? I couldn't say, answered Rhodes. The company who installed it must tell that. I know it, and when they do, you'll find it was put out of commission in some darn clever way. No beast could have done that, could they? Another thing, there ain't any tracks, except man-tracks there. I'll admit that fool gardener of yours let the crowd tramp all over everything before we got here, though the chief warned him over the phone not to do that very thing. When we came in, he was gassing away to a couple of reporters in the house, spilling everything he'd ever known about the whole family, and showing him a china image he said had been right in the room with Mrs. Rhodes when this thing happened, and got busted when she fell, as if that gave it the biggest kind of news value. The man's a fool. If he'd tended to business, instead of letting those reporters jolly him along, Blake and me would have had some show. But even with all the tramping, if the thing was an animal, there ought to be some trace left." "'There is,' put in Rhodes quietly. "'There is a broad track, trodden over, as you say, but still evident.' "'Where?' "'Before your eyes.' Rhodes pointed at to turf in front of them. The four men were standing where the trail left the macadamized drive and led off across the grass down the hill. Blake leaned forward and stared keenly at the place Rhodes indicated. Then he rose with a shake of the head. "'I don't see anything.' "'You don't? Why, the grass is laid flat in a long swat.' "'Oh, that! I didn't know what you meant. That ain't tracks. Somebody's dragged something heavy over the ground.' "'Sure,' put in McClellan scornfully. I saw that long ago. That's what I mean when I say this is all the work of some vicious practical joker. Whatever tub or can or thing he used to hold all that red stuff, he dragged it after him as he went along. The marks on the doors? McClellan shrugged. How do I know? A chisel, maybe? This fellow was clean bughouse, perhaps, with just the infernal cleverness and devilish sense of humor that some lunatics have or else it's a scheme of some sort in connection with something I don't know about." He looked keenly from Rhodes to O'Hara, a flash of suspicion in his eyes. It was not the first hint he had given that he thought they were keeping something from him. "'Ah, now, don't start that again,' snapped Cullen. "'You've already asked us every question in the world, man. What is it you think? That Tony here and myself ran home from the capital yesterday night and raised all this devilment just to destroy his house and the happiness of both of us? Certainly not. What I am looking for, and what you haven't helped me find, is the possible motive that lies behind. In our business, 
even you must know this, half the time to find the motive is to find the criminal. You ought to understand that, Mr. Rhodes, you being a lawyer." "'If I were the district attorney,' observed that young man thoughtfully, "'it might be worth while to review my record in search of some desperate criminal who had taken a vow of vengeance against me. But since my only cases have been in the civil courts, and those cases, I must admit, most obscure and unimportant ones, such a review seems hardly worth while." He looked up with a faintly boyish smile. So far as I know, I haven't a personal enemy in the world. Well, said the detective sulkily, the analysis will show whether it's blood or not, and if you can't tell me anything else you won't, that's all. Blake and I must be getting back to town." "'Sorry we can't help you out,' said Rhodes stiffly. "'So am I. Well, I'll let you know what the analysis tells us about this stuff that's been spilled around here, and we'll keep right on the job till we get to the bottom of it. By the way, do you want me to send another man out to relieve Morgan for the night?' Morgan was the officer still on guard at the front entrance, but Rhodes shook his head and O'Hara volunteered gloomily. "'No need. The harm's done. They'll not come back, whoever they are, though, by all the powers, tis the one wish of my soul that they might do just that." End of chapter 12the bungalow sold. Mr. O'Hara, is it really true that you are going down into South America to find a gold mine? The speaker's sister, a tall, dignified girl, frowned slightly and wished again that she had left Alberta, better known as Bert, at home. The child was nearly fifteen, but her frank curiosity was a trait for which her sorrowing family had yet to find means of restraint. Cullen, however, rather liked Bert Fanning and he smiled upon her pleasantly enough. "'That's my intention. Though,' he added whimsically, "'if I don't find it, twill not be the first mine I've dropped the gold into instead of taking it out.' "'How could you drop it in a mine you couldn't find?' inquired Bert, the matter-of-fact. "'Ah, the mine you don't find is an Irish mine. A bit of bull like that never troubles it at all.' Everyone laughed, and O'Hara beamed amiably at their appreciation. Again he was seated on a stone bench in Cleona's garden, but the luxuriant growth of Virginia rambler that covered the arbor above him was blossomless and with reddening leaves, for the season was mid-September. Nor was this the hilltop garden at Carpentier. A short distance off rose the gray walls and moss-colored roofs of green gables, the new home purchased by Rhodes when it became evident that his wife should be removed to other surroundings than the unlucky bungalow. By the time that Cleona's condition permitted her to be moved, he had acquired this house in a suburb many miles from Carpentier, and working together, he and Cullen had labored to furnish it in as different a style from the bungalow as he could. On this day, which heralded her return to the freedom of the outer world, Cleona was holding a sort of miniature court in the Rose Garden. Her throne, a great invalid's chair, gave her more than ever the look of a little girl, and the day being cool though sunny, she was half buried in a fluffy tumble of blue and white wool wraps. Comfortably cuddled on the footrest sound asleep, 
lay the only memento of her terrible experience for which she had ever expressed a desire, the bullpup Snookums. For some minutes Cleona had been sunk in silent reflections. At last, breaking into her brother's conversation with Bert Fanning, she inquired irrelevantly, "'Have you heard anything lately from Mr. McClellan, Colin?' "'I have not,' he shrugged a trifle contemptuously. "'Has he dropped the case, then?' "'It's still in his hands.' "'Those chaps are not an overly brilliant lot, are they?' put in young Stockton Replier. He was a fresh-faced, intelligent-looking boy, a distant relative of old Albert Marcus, another guest. "'As I understand it, they simply ignored your story, Mrs. Rhodes, and went off on a blind lead. Now any reasonable person must conclude that the thing was some sort of wild beast, and not—' The young man suddenly broke off and subsided, with a scared glance at his hostess. Rhodes caught his eye. But the invalid only laughed. "'Come round here, Tony, and don't alarm poor Mr. Replier like that. I know the doctor has told you that I am not to talk of that night, but really, I'm long past the hysterical stage. I was foolish about it for a while, but not any more. Are you perfectly sure, Tony, that this Mr. Brandon is going to buy the bungalow?' "'Perfectly. I'm to meet him tomorrow at the office of his lawyers to conclude the deal. In another twenty-four hours the last thread of connection will be severed between ourselves and poor cousin Robert's bungalow. Are you glad, Cleona?' She pondered, as if not sure of her reply, then said slowly, "'Yes, I am glad. Forgive me, people, for bringing up so unpleasant a subject, but—you don't know how I think and think about it. And whenever the picture of the place rises in my mind, it is as if a horrible red shadow had been laid on the house. Don't laugh. Had you been there that night, you would not even smile, Tony dear. I tell you there's a red, red shadow hangs over it, and there's a thing that waits and hides watching for us three to come back there. I couldn't bear that any one of us should walk under the edge of that red shadow again." She was sitting straight up in her chair, her eyes shining and her lately pale face burning with a dangerous color. "'I am sure,' said old Mr. Marcus earnestly, "'that it would be far better if you could put the whole affair out of your mind, Mrs. Rhodes.' "'Yes,' agreed Cullen, with elaborate carelessness. "'The place is sold now, so Tony will have no business there. And for myself there'll soon be a few thousand miles curve of the earth betwixt me and Carpentier. You've no cause to fret any more, Cleona." His sister regarded him with puzzled, troubled eyes. Slowly the color faded and she sank back wearily, still with her gaze fixed on him. "'You said you would not leave till I was well again,' she reminded in the tone of one renewing some former discussion. "'Nor do I. The doctor himself told me yesterday that all danger is past and gone.' And, and you said you would not go till you got at the true secret of all that happened." Sensing a certain strain in the atmosphere, the two Fanning girls and young Replier drifted off into conversation with Marcus on a different subject. "'I showed you Finn's letter,' Colin said. "'A good man he is, Charlie Finn. I learned him well in the Klondike. When he says he's on the trail of a big find, you may reckon on the weight of his word and it doesn't seem we'll solve our mystery now. And so your foot to the stirrup and off you go. But surely, Cleona, you would not ask me to live my whole life out like a cat at a rat-hole, and maybe the rat dead or gone on his travels. No, oh no, Colin, 
if you really feel so about it, and as Mr. Finn is expecting you in Buenos Aires, then go by all means." But as she finished, Cleona turned away her face and bit at a trembling lower lip. She was yet very weak, and this was the first time in her life that her big brother had turned from her when her need actually called to him. A little later all the guests save Marcus had departed, and the convalescent, complaining of weariness, had been wheeled into the house by the trained nurse still in attendance. "'It's a darn shame!' ejaculated Marcus, and Cullen started guiltily. But as the old man continued, he realized that the remark was not intended to apply to him. "'If we had any detectives worthy of the name, the scoundrel responsible for that outrage would not go unpunished.' "'What can one do?' inquired Rose resignedly. McClellan is firmly convinced, I know, that we have withheld some information that would have helped solve the problem. It has seemed to me that, in consequence, his work was very half-hearted. He believes, too, that Cleona's memories were confused with subsequent delirium and thereby robbed of value. It is true that the analysis showed real blood to have been shed, and that it was the blood of another animal than man but he contends that it would have been easy to bring the stuff from a slaughterhouse. The alarm wires had not been interfered with. The trouble lay in the insulation where a leaking drain had rotted it. I'll admit the fault is my own, since I had not tested the system for a week. But though that does away with one of McClellan's objections to the beast theory, nothing will shake his conviction that the affair was one of revenge, and that I know a cause for it. It may be that he hides behind that as an excuse for not solving the problem, I don't know. I spent some time over it myself, but every clue I could find ended, like that red-black trail down the hill, in emptiness and air. Well, if a lawyer and a detective can't find the answer, I suppose it is useless for a layman like myself to attempt it. I hope you'll have the best of fortune in Argentina, Mr. O'Hara. Since you are leaving in a few hours, I shall say good-bye now," said Marcus. Thanks, doubtless, I'll have the fortune I deserve. They say every man gets that in the end. Good-bye, and good luck to yourself also." But when Marcus had gone, Cullen spoke somewhat uneasily. "'Tell me, Tony, do you think Leona will fret herself at my going? Enough to harm her, I mean?' "'Why should she? Don't worry, old man. I'll take care of her, and when you return, believe me, you'll find the warmest welcome a man ever had. By heaven, I hate to see you go. I shall miss you, as I never thought I'd miss the company of any man." O'Hara's freckled face darkened with an embarrassed flood of color. "'That's a kindly thing to say, Tony, and it's not just any man I'd have trusted Cleona to in marriage. As for coming back, the trip may not take so long after all. But think little of it if you hear nothing from me in long whiles. I'm a bad correspondent, and where I'm going I may not care to write from, lest the message be traced. This is a rather secret expedition, you must understand." Exactly how secret it was, and how easily a message might have led to discovery, Rhodes would have more readily comprehended had he stood at O'Hara's side two days later. Cullen's surroundings did not remotely resemble the decks of the passenger-steamer on which he was supposed to be then en route for the distant South American Republic. In fact, he had just descended from a fussy, self-important little local train, 
and the sign that stared him in the face above the door of the tiny station would have explained to his sister in one word all the mystery of his seeming indifference to her welfare. That was Carpentier. "'No man or beast,' said Cullen to himself, "'can frighten my little sister out of her five wits, and me to take no proper heed of it. Charlie Finn will forward her the letters I have sent him from Buenos Aires, and the place where I am need make no difference, just so she believes me elsewhere. Now we'll see if the job of that poor fool McClellan cannot be improved on, even though the trail is so old and stale. Cleona has the seeing eye, and I know she felt sure that if any of us three should live here there would be another visitation. One O'Hara gave them the welcome of a few friendly bullets. Now let them call on the other. Maybe he'll do yet better. Tis my own house now, that I've paid Tony well for, though of that the lad has no notion, and here I'll receive whom I please, and Cleona be none the wiser or more worried. End of chapter 13「Citadel of Fear」by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear. Chapter 14. The Second Visitation. Mr. Cosmo Stackfield, rounding a sharp curve with no warning hornblast, swerved, swore, and bringing his car to a halt, turned in his seat. I say, he called back. I wasn't trying to run you down, O'Hara. Oh, I thought you were. Are you people back at the bungalow? inquired Stackfield. I trust Mrs. Rhodes is recovered from the results of her fright. She is, retorted the other with intentional briefness. She's not here. I came out by myself for the solitude. When a man's used to the open, he wearies of just hearing people chatter. So I'm living alone for a while. Good day to you, sir. Cullen's rudeness was too gross and too obviously intentional for Stackfield to ignore longer. A slow flush tinged his flabby cheeks, and with a muttered word that sounded less like good day than some term not so polite, he sped past on his road to the city. O'Hara smiled grimly after his defeated interrogator, but the incident gave him food for thought. Had he too greatly relied on not being acquainted with people in this neighborhood? Having arrived only yesterday, Stackfield was the second man who had greeted him on his early morning stroll. Secrecy promised to be a difficult achievement. Laying the matter aside as one that must be left to chance, O'Hara turned back toward Carpentier. Having no particular fancy for housekeeping, he had engaged a middle-aged woman to come up by the day, cook his meals, and keep the bungalow in order. Luncheon that day proved one sad fact conclusively. Promising of all housewifely virtues had been the neat vine-covered cottage from which Cullen had wrested her to his own service. Mrs. Bollinger could not cook. The house had been thoroughly repaired, even to the laying of new planks in the scarred living-room floor, and the furniture left undamaged was plenty for his needs. Four days he spent reading, an occupation of which he was always fond, and wandering about the now-neglected gardens. Ten o'clock of the fifth evening found him going about his usual preparations for the night. They were painstaking, though of a sort which would have astonished Mrs. Bollinger. Most people expecting an undesirable caller do not leave doors and windows unlocked, certainly not invitingly ajar. 
nor does the burglar-expecting householder prefer his home to be in utter darkness from ten o'clock on throughout the night. Having little use for the police at any time, Cullen had disconnected the burglar alarm. Now he sought the kitchen and returned, his arms laden with tin aluminum utensils, to be stacked in high tottery piles behind the doors opening inward upon the living-room from the veranda and from the pantry into the dining-room, placing them so, rather than at the outer doors, lest the intruder be frightened away too early for successful pursuit. As he carried out this simple and homely expedient for providing noise when noise should be least welcome, he whistled quite cheerfully for a man expecting so very strange a visitation. Then he lay down fully dressed, in the room that had been his sister's. Four nights his light slumber had been unbroken, but on this fifth night he suddenly awakened, every sense alert in the black darkness. Something he knew was imminent. Something had telegraphed a warning to his sleeping brain. A sound? He listened keenly, intently. From far away came the faint whistle of a locomotive. Against his window he heard a slight tapping sound, then a flutter, accompanied by a mouse-like squeaking. A wind-blown vine tapping the pane, the squeak of a bat. Those sounds should not have roused him. With stealthy noiselessness, O'Hara slid from his bed and stole across the floor. The night was moonless, with an overcast sky, and save for the dim, oblong shapes of the windows the darkness within the bungalow was absolute. But O'Hara saw the location of every piece of furniture in the light of a carefully schooled memory, and he made no blunders. Every sense quivering with a vivid expectation, he peered into the living-room. What had awakened him? A dream? He had not been dreaming. Sheer nervousness? He knew himself too well for that to receive consideration. He heard no sound, felt no vibration. He had fallen asleep in a house empty save for himself. It was not empty now. He knew it, felt it, yet could give himself no reason for the assurance. As noiselessly as he had crossed the bedroom, he passed through the living-room. From the portiered arch he stared on into further silent blackness. On turning back, however, O'Hara became aware that a change had befallen the space behind him. Vaguely he could now perceive dark masses, chairs, a table, even, though faintly, the rug on which he stood. It was some seconds before he perceived the source of this illumination, which was, by infinitesimal degrees, growing steadily brighter. Between living-room and veranda the partition was pierced by two windows, glazed and hung with thin, ivory-yellow curtains. Three other windows, similarly draped, opened upon a lawn beyond the angle formed by the veranda's end wall. On sunny days nearly as much light was reflected through one set of windows as the other, for the veranda was finished in yellow spruce and faced south. Now, however, the windows toward the lawn were invisible behind their curtains, while those opening upon the veranda had become faintly glowing rectangles of yellowish light. It was not a steady light. It throbbed, first dim, then brighter, in a long, regular pulsation. O'Hara's first impulse was to spring across the room and sweep the curtains aside. His second was better. A view through the window might gratify his curiosity but he wanted a more practical satisfaction than that. 
he would take no chance of giving a premature alarm by spying between curtains. The light, which until now had continually increased, ceased to grow, but continued to throb. Still no sound came from the other side of the partition, nor could he see anything through the translucent window draperies. He stood there in the dim twilight of the living-room and the two windows hung like yellow, oblong Chinese lanterns, pulsing between light and shadow, but giving no other hint of the presence that must be back of them. At last Cullen moved. Crouchingly he stole toward the door, body half-bent, ready at any moment to leave creeping and spring. Even to him the stillness had become somewhat ghastly. If enemies were there, why did they make no move? What could be the object of this ghostly and silent illumination? They did not, could not, know that he was aware of their presence. What was there in the veranda to hold their attention for so long a time? Then Cullen committed a folly for which he never afterward quite forgave himself. In the intensity of his desire to reach the door, fling it wide, and take the enemy unaware, he forgot his own precautions against its noiseless opening. As his hand closed on the knob, one foot grazed the little pile of precariously balanced tinware. Over it went, clashing and clattering, a most satisfactory alarm, had he not been the one to spring it. End of chapter 14「Chapter Fifteen of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter Fifteen, The Third Visitation. The racket so startled its originator that he leapt backward, collided with a tabaret, and sent that over. The oblongs of light in the southern wall vanished abruptly. Further stealth was absurdly useless. Cullen flung himself at the door, wrenched it open, and reaching upward, snapped on the general light-switch of the veranda. It sprang into dazzling visibility, but no one was there. Cullen made sure of its emptiness in one swift look that included the space beneath a large table and a wicker divan, snapped off the light—he had no desire to form a mark for bullets—and was at the outer door. It stood ajar as he had left it. Outside the darkness was nearly as impenetrable as within the house, but for that there was a remedy. Opening a concealed steel switch-box, Cullen pulled a lever and sprang down the steps. The lever completed the circuit for several powerful lamps about the grounds, and by their aid he began a search which he had felt in the beginning would be fruitless. He had only himself to blame. The unknown foe had walked into the trap, so he told himself, and his own careless foot had kicked it open. Raging, he darted from tree-shadow to tree-shadow, cautious even in his fury, but lawns, gardens, and outbuildings were empty as the veranda itself. For any signs to the contrary, that dim irradiation of the windows might have been a product of his overstimulated imagination. "'The cowards! The sneaking, crawling cowards!' he muttered angrily. Afraid of the noise of a tin pot or so, tis myself has a notion to give them no further attention." But as he flung himself into a chair in the living-room he knew that he would sit there the balance of the night, 
nourishing the hope that again those two windows might slowly, uncannily illuminate themselves. They did, but it was by the matter-of-fact light of a desolate dawn. Disgustedly, Cullen replaced his two efficient burglar alarms in the kitchen, undressed, got to bed, and slept soundly until nearly noon. "'It's busted, but I didn't do it, Mr. O'Hara. It was laying broke on the floor when I come in.' "'That? Where were you finding it?' Cullen's brows knit as he took from his housekeeper the shattered object of her protestation. "'I tell you, it was laying on the veranda floor when I come in. Honest, I never even seen it before, Mr. O'Hara.' Mrs. Bollinger's lean, corded hands twisted themselves nervously in her apron. Though no ceramic expert, there was a quaint beauty about the broken mannequin that warned her of possible value. Hm, ejaculated Cullen. It must have been left here with the rest of the furniture when we took Leona away, though I can't remember seeing it about. All right, Mrs. Bollinger, I likely knocked it down myself last night. When she had gone, he stood for some minutes eyeing the image in his hands. The poor little lord of the air had certainly found bad fortune in the alien land to which Cullen had brought him. First he had lost his serpent crook, and now the round, feather-trimmed shield on the other arm had been broken off, arm and all. Yet still he smiled with patient benignity. "'Tis odd,' muttered Cullen, "'that I never saw you standing about in the veranda, little man.' It's a wonderful faculty you have for being broke in the midst of a mystery. Well, your bit of staff is gone for good, but the shield and arm here can be restored to you, and shall be for the sake of the dream you will always bring to the memory. Smile away, little man. Cement will work miracles." With a whimsical smile he set the image and his broken part on a shelf and promptly forgot them both that there could be any actual connection between the lord of the air and their troubles at the bungalow never once occurred to him. How should it? Dream or reality, that strange night of so long ago, had held nothing for him that could have led him to suspect the truth, a nightmare, dreadful truth, for whose discovery he was at the last to pay a heavy price. When a full fortnight had slipped by, its monotony unrelieved, Cullen's patience wore decidedly threadbare. He did not at all like this game of waiting and watching. He dared make no new acquaintances, and rebuffed what advances were offered him. Afternoons and evenings he spent in reading, or in taking long tramps through the autumn woods, while at all times he kept a sharp lookout for any clue, small or large, that might serve to simplify his problem. But September passed and October struck the woods to sharp reds and gold, and still he had discovered nothing. The time began to drag intolerably. What people he met looked at him with irritating curiosity, born of his unusual appearance and solitary habits. The last week of October crept in. The thick foliage that hid the bungalow was beginning to thin in places, and the lawns were a rustle with bright leaves when that occurred which led Cullen to take renewed hope of his long vigil. The sun had set, a blood-red ball behind the purple autumn haze, and Cullen stepped out of his front door to take a few long breaths of the crispy cool night air. 
Then he would go into the lonely and ill-cooked dinner which Mrs. Bullinger had laid out before departing for the night. That good woman glanced back through the twilight at the dark mass of screening foliage that still concealed the bungalow, and went her way with many shakes of the head and a hastening step. It was already night beneath the trees that overhung her road. "'That poor man will have to get someone else to wait on him,' she reflected as she hurried along, "'or else I must leave earlier. It's all right for him to live in a house that the devil visited, if he likes that sort of thing. But goodness knows, Mr. O'Hare is big enough to thrash even Satan himself. But I'll never stay in that house again after dark, no matter how bad we need the money. And I'll tell him so tomorrow morning, first thing. There was that rustling in the trees last night as I went home, and I was a perfect fool to stay so late. Oh!" The woman suddenly picked up her skirts and fled like a rheumatic but badly frightened deer. A little distance from the road there had begun a great rustling and crackling of fallen leaves, and at the same time something whizzed through the air and struck her a painful blow on the cheek. The missile was only a chestnut burr, but its sharp prickles more than made up for its light weight. Poor Mrs. Bollinger dashed into Carpentier at a gallop, under the firm impression that she had been shot in the face by a rifle bullet. Her story, however, was somewhat skeptically met. A bullet is supposed to leave some visible mark of its passage, and anyway no neighbor of hers was quite neighborly enough to care for investigating those dark woods with their evil reputation. So the injured lady retrieved her children from the care of a friend and retired to her home, nursing a stung face and the firm resolve that not even daylight should tempt her to return to the bungalow on the hill. Cullen strode up and down the macadamized drive beneath the arching trees. He had that day received his first letter from Cleona, which had gone the long route to Buenos Aires and back, remailed by the faithful Charles Finn. She was much better, it seemed, in fact, practically well. But Tony babied her dreadfully, and they were going down to St. Augustine the first of December. They missed him, Colin, very much indeed, but she presumed and hoped that he was happy and having a good time. She supposed by now he must be well on his way across the pampas. In that case this letter might never reach him, but she hoped it would so that he might know how well she was and enjoy his chosen road untroubled by care for her. Tony sent his love with hers and Snookums had caught a rat, but it bit him and got away. She hoped he would think of her sometimes and remember that she was always his faithfully loving sister, Cleona Rhodes. Now why, said Cullen, as he paused beneath a spreading oak and kicked at the dry leaves with an impatient foot, why Cleona Rhodes? That's the first time she was ever any other than just Cleona, or maybe Clee, to her poor runabout brother. And I wonder, have I left Buenos Aires or no? If I have not, twould be an easy matter to lay up poor Charlie with a broken leg and postpone the expedition or myself with a fever requiring immediate return that I be cured of it. I'm thinking the O'Hara has made a fool of himself. Now will he be the bigger fool to stay here, or to throw up the whole business and return for a pleasant reconciliation with this Cleona Rhodes that's so formal of a sudden with her own born brother? He pondered a while longer, then threw back his red head in a gesture of decision. 
What that decision may have been is immaterial, for just then something rustled in the boughs above him, with a violent crashing motion, and two enormous hairy hands closed in a strangling grip about the Irishman's throat. Cullen had so nearly resigned any hope of being attacked, and had so little reason to expect attack to descend upon him out of a tree, and at that early of the night, that he came near to being strangled before he could realize what was taking place. The hands that had gripped him were unnaturally long and sinewy. The fingers overlapped on his by no means slender throat, as his own might have twined about the neck of a child. And as they squeezed inward, they pulled upward. Cullen's two hundred and thirty pounds of bone and muscle actually rose into the air, till only his toes touched the ground. He enjoyed all the sensations of a man being unexpectedly hanged, and as such a man would grasp at the rope over his head, so his hands flew up to seize the thing above him. His fingers closed on shaggy hair over iron-hard muscles, the blood was pounding in his ears and the transparent darkness brightened to a red, star-spangled mist. If it had been a rope about his neck, his effort to raise himself might have relieved the strain, but in this case the rope was alive and squeezing inward with murderous intent. Fortunately for Cullen, though his assailant was strong enough to raise his victim clean off the ground, the tree-limb which supported the operation was less efficient. As Cullen struggled there came a sharp, loud crack. Next instant he was down on the macadam, part of a frantic, writhing tangle of legs, arms, and the dry bough that had saved his life by breaking. The fall loosened his assailant's hold, and they met on equal terms. Over and over they rolled, the Irishman breathing in great gasps, as he at first strove only to keep those terrible hands from regaining their grip on his throat. Devil or man or monkey, it was the strongest, most thoroughly energetic antagonist he had ever encountered. It had been silent, but now it was snarling in a slobbering, avid sort of way that made Cullen's gorge rise in disgust even as he fought. But his own strength was fast returning, and with one mighty effort he tore the great thing loose, flung it back off his body and got to his feet, half-crouched and straining his eyes through the gloom. A pale bulk rose at him in a long leap, its grasping arms outstretched. With the quickness of a trained wrestler, Cullen caught one of the wrists in both his hands, turned his back, and with the arm over one shoulder bore down with all his force. There was a cracking noise, as when the branch snapped off, but not so loud, accompanied by a snarl of pain. The white thing came flying over Cullen's head and landed with a heavy thud on the macadam before him. Releasing his hold on the arm, he grasped at the body of his victim, but the creature evaded him. Showing remarkable activity, in view of its broken arm and the bad fall it had sustained, the thing was on its feet in an instant, rustling and pattering across the leaf-strewn lawn with Colin in furious pursuit. The latter was unarmed. Though he had brought with him to the bungalow a large-caliber pistol whose bullets would pierce a four-inch hardwood plank, he had, quite characteristically, never even removed it from its suitcase. Each night he had sat watchful, content in the confidence of his own great strength, but now he wished with all his heart that he had the weapon with him. Had the season been summer, the fugitive might have easily escaped. 
beneath the scattered trees it was dark as a cellar, and only the creature's own whiteness made it dimly visible in the starlit open spaces. But the dry leaves of autumn traced its progress, and though Cullen ran against more than one tree-trunk, and had to stop occasionally to distinguish the noise of its flight from his own, he managed to follow down the hill across Llewellyn Creek and into some denser woods beyond. There began an increased rustling and a crashing of boughs ahead. Cullen realized that his former assailant had left the ground and was swinging itself from bough to bough through the forest. To follow farther seemed folly. Nevertheless the Irishman kept doggedly on, following the trail of noise and never getting very far behind it. Perhaps its broken arm retarded the creature's speed. At any rate, though he stumbled among vines, tore his clothes and flesh on briars, climbed fences, fell headlong over rotting logs, and generally suffered great personal inconvenience, the pursuer kept always within hearing distance of the pursued. It was heartbreaking work. Only a man of supernal strength, stamina, and stubbornness could have held to that mad hunt, mile after mile, as did Cullen O'Hara. The fugitive avoided houses, and for that reason they by no means went as the crow flies. Several times they crossed roads, and once Cullen dashed across a turnpike just in front of a whizzing automobile. The driver slowed to look back and swear, but Cullen had neither time nor attention to spare for his grievance. On, 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 and still ahead of him the October foliage betrayed that wild flight from treetop to leaf-strewn glade and up to the branches again. Cullen had lost all sense of direction. Save for the occasional roads and fences they crossed, and judged by the route they had come, this section of suburbia one vast and trackless forest. Cullen was no mean woodsman, but never before had he explored such an apparent wilderness, through black night and at so breathless a pace. He had begun to believe that the chase would never end, and that so long as he followed the untiring thing ahead would flee, when the noise ceased. Stopping in his tracks he listened intently. Only the small, usual sounds of night broke the stillness, the chirp of a late cricket the thud of a ripe chestnut burr falling to the ground, and far away a honking auto-horn. Had his quarry taken counsel of common sense and hidden itself in a treetop? If so, then the chase was indeed ended. In that darkness, without dogs or torches, he could not hope to find its hiding-place. Again Cullen began to move forward as silently and swiftly as he might, still listening for any significant rustle before or above him. He came to a deep ditch, just missed falling into it, leapt across and found himself on a broad, smooth road, electrically illuminated at wide intervals. An explanation of the silence occurred to him. This road was practically bare of the tell-tale leaves. Was it possible that the fugitive had left the false protection of the trees and taken to the road? If so, in which direction had it gone? To the right, far down the way, a pale, squat bulk glided into view, slinking on short bowed legs, into the light of a lamp and out again like a fleeting white shadow. Cullen gave vent to a wild halloo and dashed in pursuit. He caught occasional glimpses of the thing ahead as it passed beneath the road lamps, and thought that he was at last gaining ground. 
in a foot-race over smooth going, the creature of the trees had the worst of it. The road curved, crossed a stream, and a high stone wall replaced the forest on the left-hand side. Scarcely the length of a city square now separated the Irishman from his quarry. Then he saw it pause directly beneath a lamp, a semi-human shape, and shake one long, thin arm at him as if in defiance. The other hung limp at its side. Cullen shouted again and increased his speed. His feet pounded over the hard-oiled road in giant strides, but again the creature flitted from the circle of light, this time to one side. Cullen pulled up and came on more slowly, for a shrill bell was ringing somewhere behind the wall. There followed a rattle, a clang as of iron, and then the creaking of hinges. A voice spoke, mumbling indistinctly and Cullen arrived at a pair of wrought-iron gates just in time to have them shut in his face with a vicious clang. End of chapter 15「Chapter 16 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear Chapter 16 Admitted O'Hara stepped up, and, grasping the elaborate iron scrollwork, shook the gate angrily. "'Hear you!' he cried. "'If this is the city zoo, what do you mean by letting your ferocious baboons and gorillas roam the country at large?' The guardian of the gate, he who had opened it for the ape's entrance and closed it in the face of its pursuer, made no reply, unless an incoherent mutter could be so accounted. He seemed a tall, thin man dressed in rough corduroys, and his narrow, triangular face peered out at Cullen through the floral scrolls with a curiously furtive look. Cullen could see him very well by the light of the road-lamp, and thought that his face had a whiteness, as if the man had been badly frightened, or was just risen from a sick-bed. "'What's that?' demanded Cullen, his indignation growing as he recalled the difficulties and discomforts of his long run, and the unpleasant combat preceding it. You need make no excuses to me. I saw the brute come in here, though I do not see him now, and I wish to come in myself and talk with the man who has charge of this place and takes in raging gorillas like they were invited guests at a parish lawn-party. Will you admit me, or will I break down this fancy gate of yours?" He gave it so violent a shake that the man inside jumped back. "'Stop!' he cried excitedly. "'Stop it! Instantly!' You are making a noise, a big noise. Stop it!" The man's voice came out of his lips as if there were no teeth behind them, in a kind of hushed and mumbling shriek. But he had teeth, for as Cullen loosened his grasp and the man again thrust his face against the scroll, they were bared in an animal snarl. His glaring eyes reflected the lamplight with a reddish gleam. A little shiver of cold crept down the Irishman's spine. Almost involuntarily, he retreated a step. But Cullen O'Hara was not the one to be done out of satisfaction for his wrongs by a white-faced, red-eyed, silly-mouthed booby hiding behind a gate, and so he intimidated in very positive terms. And, he concluded, you will now permit me to speak with the gentleman who has the bad taste to keep you and your brother that you just let in for household pets, and if you do not, I'll come in whether or no. We'll see if the O'Hara must chase wild apes over a bog and ditch and win his pains for his trouble." 
At that the keeper of the gate moved sulkily away, mumbling over his shoulder. "'You must wait, then, till I go to the master.' "'I'll wait, but don't try my patience too far now.' The figure vanished into the darkness that lay beyond the wall. O'Hara, peering after him, could see only a few square yards of leaf-matted gravel, on which the pattern of the gate was laid in shadow by the lamp behind him. Beside it rose a roughly peaked cubic mound of reddening ivy, which he took to be either a much-neglected gate-lodge or a monument of some sort, probably the latter, for there was no sign of door or window. Beyond only dark tree-masses loomed against the starry sky. No lights gleamed through the branches, nor did any sound come out save when the night-breeze faintly rustled the dry leaves. "'A queer place, and no mistake,' muttered Cullen. "'And I'm thinking that once in, the O'Hara may wish himself out again. I wonder has this beast I've chased here anything at all to do with the other matters. Could a monkey, however knowing, have done the things that were performed at the bungalow? No, likely this is an occurrence by itself, and I'll just give the beast's owner a piece of my mind and go home again.' Having reached this conclusion, Cullen began to weary of such long waiting. The gatekeeper had now been absent at least a quarter of an hour, and for any evidence of life the Irishman might have been the only human being within miles. Not even a car had passed on the pike behind him. He shifted from one foot to the other and swore softly. "'The white-faced fool has played me some trick,' he grumbled. "'Very like twas through his fault that the beast got loose, and he's never gone near his precious master.' Well, there was a bell connected with this gate. He had heard it sing. Searching for a moment, he located a push-button and set his thumb firmly against it. The bell rang, but it rang inside the ivy-covered heap beside the gate. It was a lodge, then. The shrill clamor sounded so startlingly near and out of place in the silence that Cullen hesitated a moment before ringing again. Was that vague rustling sound from inside the lodge, or was it the wind among the leaves? It ceased after a moment. Cullen waited, then, as no one came, he rang again. For fully five minutes he continued to ring, first steadily, then in long and short assaults on the bell-push. But the noise he made was his sole reward. Disgusted, and at last really angry, O'Hara drew back from the gate and contemplated the wall. Fully ten feet high, it extended right and left in an unbroken barrier. "'My coat to the wall,' said Cullen, proceeding to take it off and I'll soon be over." The garment with which he intended padding the sharp, wicked-looking spikes was in his hand, and he was about to fling it upward when he arrested his arm and hastily slipped the coat on again. A sound had reached his ear from beyond the gate. Either the gatekeeper was returning, or the bell had at last roused someone else to action. Again he peered into the grounds. Out of the darkness a figure emerged walking with a brisk, firm tread, and close behind glimmered the white face and red eyes of his first acquaintance, the gatekeeper. As the newcomer advanced, Cullen could perceive, even in the dim, shadow-streaked light, that he was a bearded man, that he wore a pair of round glasses with tortoise rims, and that he was frowning angrily. "'Are you the ruffian who broke that poor brute's arm? Marco, open the gate and have him come in.' O'Hara was so taken aback by this forestalling of his own complaint that Marco, he of the white face, had time to unlock and swing wide the portals before he could think of any fit reply. 
but he had no hesitation about entering. In he stalked and confronted the newcomer, while behind him the gate shut, clanging. "'I am the man your beast would have strangled,' he began indignantly. "'And for why do you let him run wild at night? The way he might have killed me had I been a small, weak man. Strangling at the throat of me when I am meditating in my own dooryard? Or is it that you are training the handsome creature for murder?' At that the bearded man laughed. His tone was low, amused, with just the faintest hint of a sneer somewhere about it. "'Pray, my dear sir, don't carry your accusation to the point of absurdity. If, as you hint, it was Khan who attacked you first, I owe you an apology. Perhaps we had best go to the house and discuss this quietly. Will you follow me, sir?' O'Hara hesitated, but only momentarily. He was possessed of a dubious feeling, scarcely amounting to suspicion, that wisdom would carry his feet elsewhere than inward. To O'Hara, however, discretion was ever an uninteresting virtue. When the bearded man led the way into the dark shadows of the trees, after him went Colin. He was still conscious of a sense of repulsion toward the white-faced gatekeeper following close at his heels, and of a generally eerie and disagreeable impression. But no doubt this was folly, and no man, not even such a one as this gatekeeper, can help the looks he is born with. As for the ungainly monster he had chased here, it was most likely a valuable pet, whose ferocity might or might not be known to its master. Barely able to see his way, Cullen was not aware that they had approached a house until the drive curved sharply aside and they arrived at an entrance the light of whose open door was shielded by a deep stone porch and a porte-cochere arching above the driveway. From the look of these he judged the mansion to be one of considerable size and dignity, but whether a private residence or a public institute of some kind he was not yet able to determine. The three men ascended the steps, passed through the porch, and came into a square, old-fashioned reception hall. Within the door the master of the house turned to his guest. He was an older man than the latter had at first supposed, for the carefully trimmed Van Dyke beard was thickly streaked with grey. But the dark eyes behind the great round lenses were very bright, his expression was keenly intelligent, and these characteristics, together with his quick, alert way of moving, lent him a deceptive look of youth. As he stood, Cullen noticed that he kept his left hand in the pocket of his coat. He noticed it because that hand had been in that pocket since the first moment of their meeting. Cullen had seen other men's left or right hands concealed in the same consistent manner, and it generally meant one thing. He himself was unarmed. "'Will you be seated, sir?' inquired the man courteously enough. "'I must ask you to excuse me while I give Marco some directions for the setting of Khan's arm. The poor brood is suffering.' O'Hara acquiesced. As Marco passed across the room in his master's wake, the visitor received one quick, full view of him and of his face. The man's singular pallor was explained, for Marco was an albino. He had removed his cap and disclosed a smooth, oval skull, sparsely covered with bristling white hairs. By this more revealing light, his eyes, that had gleamed red in the shadow-shot gloom, were a reddish-pink and in that one clear glimpse of them O'Hara had a sickening notion that those eyes saw not out but inward. The pupils were like black pinpoints. 
the effect was as if the man had literally reversed his vision and contemplated not his outer surroundings but the secrets of his own stealthy soul. A childish and an unjust idea, for what had he against Marco save his unfortunate appearance? Alone in the hall, O'Hara looked about with a judging, curious eye. His first impression had been pleasant. The room was agreeably lighted by a hanging fixture, whose translucent, cream-colored globe diffused a mellow radiance. A log glowed in the depths of a fireplace of black dignity and size. The furniture, while severely plain, was good. There was certainly no hint of mystery or danger in that well-lighted, well-ordered, empty hall. And yet, as he stood there, O'Hara was again keenly conscious of the feeling he had experienced on entering the gate. It was as though the very atmosphere were charged with discomfort and some incomprehensible warning. It was indubitably charged beside with a faint but unpleasant odor. Very like it was that which troubled him. He wondered again if Reed kept other beasts than Khan on the premises, and if the bungalow mystery were not indeed near its solution. A door opened and his host re-entered. "'What? Still standing?' began the man, but Cullen broke in on his hospitable protestations, which might have seemed more friendly had not that left hand remained in ambiguous concealment. "'I will not sit down. I am not fit to be seated on a decent chair, for I am mud and mould from the head to the feet of me. And for that it seems that we, or rather Khan, is responsible. You must let me make amends, Mr. O'Hara,' supplied the other. My own name is Chester Reed. When you first came here, Mr. O'Hara, and from Marco's account, I believe that you had met Khan on the road and broken his arm with a club or bullet in an effort to capture him. Now I am inclined to believe that an explanation is due you. Before I offer it, would you give me an outline of exactly what occurred?" Something about the man, or the tones of his voice, struck O'Hara as faintly familiar. Disagreeably familiar, too as if the former association, if there had really been one, was of a distinctly unpleasant nature. Yet the name was new to him, and the face called up no recollections. Doubtless the familiarity was no more than a resemblance to someone he had once known. He began his narrative, but not until Reed had insisted that he be seated, mud or no mud, and had brought out a decanter, glasses, and a humidor of strong but good cigars. For this service he used his right hand only. The left was still in his pocket. Cullen began to believe his suspicions unjustified. Perhaps the man's hand was in some way deformed, and thus a mere personal habit, because he scowled over the inconvenience of his one-handed hospitality, and one or three times very obviously overcame an impulse to bring the left hand to the aid of its mate. The tale ended. Reed shook his head with a frown of annoyance. This is the result of Marco's carelessness. He is an excellent trainer, but he will persist in regarding Genghis Khan as a human being rather than a monkey. I myself had no idea that Khan had a trace of viciousness. He is as gentle and tractable as a child, eats his meals at table, dresses himself in the morning, helps Marco with other animals. In fact, does everything human except read, write, and talk. I suppose that, in the woods, Khan cast aside his clothes and his gentility together. I must congratulate you, Mr. O'Hara. I should not myself care to try a fall with Genghis Khan. 
Have we met before, Mr. Reed? The irrelevant question took his host by surprise. For just an instant Cullen thought that the lids behind the round lenses flickered curiously. Then he replied with a quietness tinged by natural surprise, I am sure we have not, Mr. O'Hara. You are not the sort of person whom one forgets." Cullen met his quizzical smile and glanced down at himself ruefully. "'You may say so, but I'm not always the wild barbarian I do look just now. Your pet led me a wild dance, and that's the truth. You spoke of other animals. Will you tell me this? What kind of beast do you keep, and did one other of them break loose early in the summer?' Never. Reed put a strong emphasis on the word which he seemed to regret, for he qualified it instantly. Never, that is, that I am aware of. I have a rather queer assortment, I admit. By methods of my own, I breed and raise animals which I intend later to dispose of to menageries, museums, and the like. That is my business. But all precautions are taken, and there is no more danger than there might be in connection with any ordinary menagerie or breeding farm. That is what this place really is, a stock farm, only instead of cows and sheep we handle more peculiar beasts. But there are none of them large enough or savage enough to do any particular harm if they did break loose, and they are all shut behind bars and strong fences." "'Genghis Khan,' suggested O'Hara, with a lift of his red brows. "'I have explained that. Hereafter Khan will not be given so much liberty. Sometime, if you care to come around by daylight, I shall be glad to show you over my place. It is a privilege I extend to few, but—" Breaking off in the midst of speech, Reed grasped the arm of his chair with his free hand and half rose with an indistinct ejaculation. Somewhere, though it was hard to say from what direction, there had begun a peculiar groaning sound. The very floor quivered to its vibration, and Cullen was momentarily conscious of a strange feeling of nausea. The sound persisted for perhaps ten seconds, then ceased as abruptly as it had begun. There followed a sudden patter of feet across the floor of the room over their heads, a faint scream. That was a woman's voice. Cullen sprang to his feet, bewildered, but with an innate conviction that something had gone very much wrong somewhere. Reed, however, laid a staying hand on his arm. "'Do not disturb yourself, I beg. That voice, I may as well tell you, as you will hear of it perhaps from other sources, I live here alone with Marco and—my daughter. She is deranged. There. It is a painful subject, and the great sorrow of my life. But such things are given us to endure by God, or Providence, or whatever arbitrary force rules the universe. She cannot bear my poor animals, and will often scream like that at a noise from the cages or yards." As he spoke, the expression of almost savage impatience which twisted Reed's features had faded and smoothed into one of deep and painful sadness. Cullen stared. "'Was that the first noise made by one of your beasts, then? T'would be a queer animal with a voice like that. I'd like to see the creature.' That noise? Reed looked oddly uneasy. I really couldn't say, Mr. O'Hara. It might have been Marco dragging around one of the small cages, or a box. Yes, he continued with more assurance, he probably dragged some heavy box across the floor. But my poor daughter takes alarm at the most innocent sounds. 
It was on O'Hara's tongue to ask why, if the proximity of the beasts so distressed his daughter, Reed did not send her away to a sanatorium or asylum. But he repressed the question. After all, it was no affair of his. Instead, he said gravely, "'You have my sympathy, sir, and I understand your feelings entirely. But as to the invitation, twould give me pleasure to visit you on some other day, and in a manner more formal.' If you feel yourself to have been injured by Genghis Khan, or if he damaged your property in any way, I shall be glad to—nothing of the sort. I more than squared accounts with your poor ape in person. To tell the truth, there's a deal of time on my hands now, and I've a fancy for animals. Would it trouble you should I run over tomorrow afternoon?" Not at all. Do so, by all means. Reed spoke with a great appearance of cordiality. Come at any time and ring the bell at the gate. Markle will let you in. Then thank you, and I'll be going. By the way," he broke off with a laugh, then explained, "'Your Genghis Khan knows the country hereabouts better than myself. He led me about and about, the way I've no notion at all what part of America I'm in now.' "'The house is only a short walk from Undine,' smiled his host, and Carpentier, where I suppose you wish to return, is the next station up the line. I keep no car, or I would send you back that way, but at least Marco can show you the road to the station. If you would care to—er—straighten your attire—' "'And wash off the mud and the blood,' put in Cullen. "'Tis a fine idea, for I doubt they'd take me on board in my present condition. But no need to trouble your man. I can find my own way, if you'll point it, and thanks to you.' as you like." Reed led the way upstairs and introduced him to a well-appointed bathroom. "'Here is a clothes-brush, and help yourself to the soap and clean towels. I will wait for you in the hall below. You have half an hour for there is a train at ten-five. Sorry I can't offer you the services of a valet, but we live very simply, and Marco and Genghis Khan are my only servants.' "'I've already been valeted by Genghis Khan,' jested O'Hara and do not care to repeat the performance. I'll be with you in ten minutes, Mr. Reed." Alone, as he brushed at his clothes, Cullen reflected on the singular make-up of this household. "'A mad daughter and a menagerie to care for, and he keeps one servant. Yet is it poverty that ails him? The one room I've seen is well furnished enough, and here he has an elegant bathroom, clean towels by the dozen. And himself is not poorly dressed. Strange he not have one woman at least to be company for the unfortunate girl. And he says his beast could not break loose. And that noise was the dragging of a cage. It would be a heavy cage that shook the house like that, though I myself find it hard to account for by any other cause. Nevertheless, had McClellan a head on his shoulders, he'd have found out this place and explored it. But no, he would not believe that Cleona's wild beast was aught but human. Having done the best possible by his clothes, he began cleansing his face and hands. An odd thing, now I think of it, that the people hereabout kept quiet. So close to Carpentier, and the paper so full of it and all. How Mr. Chester Reed was not dragged into our business, man-monkey, stock-farm and all, is a bigger puzzle than the other. I'll be kind to the poor man, and courteous, and perhaps tomorrow I'll step on the tail of the whole mystery. There, I'm decent to pass in a crowd, and three minutes of the ten yet to spare. 
He passed out toward the stair. As he did so, a door opened at the end of the hall behind him, and hearing the soft click of its latch, he glanced around. There, framed in the doorway, stood the most melancholy and at the same time the most oddly beautiful figure that Cullen had ever seen. She could be none other than Reed's mad daughter, but the Irishman forgot that in amazement at her loveliness. What she thought of him O'Hara could not know. The slight parting of her lips and her wide eyes might have expressed either amazement, alarm, or expectation. Curiously enough, O'Hara was convinced, both then and afterward, that her emotion was really the last named, though what she could expect of him, whom she had never before set eyes on, seemed hard to surmise. He was also convinced, and this belief was as lacking in practical foundation as the other, that she had some information to impart, something which it was highly important that he should know, and which concerned them both. Heretofore O'Hara had compared all women with Cleona, to their disparagement, but here was one who could be compared to no one. She was herself alone and utterly a creature apart, almost unearthly, who yet suggested in an odd way all the natural beauties of earth. So the darkness of her hair and eyes hinted at mystery of dusk and the recurring miracle of starshine. She was tall and slender, and her height and slim, bare arms made one think of dryads that lived in willow-trees and came out to dance at moonrise. Her hair hung down in rippling, dark curls over the green gown she was dressed in, and Cullen saw the beauty of her hair and did not perceive that the gown was so worn and old that it hung in tatters about her bare ankles and so threadbare in places that her white limb shone through it. Her face was long and oval, and her large eyes were too bright, as if suffused with unshed tears. She had the loveliness of night, and the sorrowful beauty of forest pools that hold the stars and the trees in their bosoms. That was the wonder which appeared to Cullen O'Hara. But had he not been Cullen O'Hara, or had he ever loved any other woman save his sister, then it may be that the wonder would not have appeared to him. So he might have seen only a slim girl in a torn green gown, beautiful perhaps, but thin and very melancholy. And how should either of them guess of a former meeting? Fifteen years are a gulf to swallow memories, and in fifteen years a girl-baby finds magic indeed to change her. Their first glance for each other was of recognition, but it was not a recognition to save suffering being not of the flesh and earthly, it spared them no after-pain. Cullen had no idea of how long he stood there, staring at the girl and waiting for the message she had for him. But it could hardly have been more than a few moments until Reed's voice floated up to him from below. "'Is that you, O'Hara? You haven't long to catch that train!' Cullen roused with a start, and the girl, who had seemed on the very edge of speaking, laid two slim fingers on her lips in a gesture of silence and slipped back into her room. O'Hara went down the stairs like a man descending out of a dream. He did not know what had happened to him, but that something had happened he was gloriously aware. Every nerve and fiber of his giant body tingled with vivid life, and had she not made that gesture of silence and warning he would have gone to the girl not to read. The latter met him at the stair-foot with a glance sharply suspicious. "'I heard you stop there on the floor above. Did my daughter speak to you? Poor child! 
she is as ready to address a stranger as her own father." Cullen came to earth with a jolt. That, then, had been the mad girl. Reed's daughter. And he had—he had—why, he had done nothing. Only life had for him turned a somersault and seemed right sight up for the first time. But mad! Was it madness that gave her that elfin look? that made her so differently, so marvelously beautiful?" "'I had no word from your daughter, sir,' he replied gravely and sadly, for he was wishing he had. "'Will you show me the road to the station?' "'You will have no trouble in finding it. Go out the gate, turn to your right, and keep straight on by the wall. From where it ends you can see the lights at the station. Good night, sir.' The door closed with needless sharpness as Cullen went down the steps. Then it opened again. "'If you want any further directions,' Reed called, and there was a strange hint of laughter in his voice, "'ask the gatekeeper!' And once more he banged the door. Cullen had turned at the first word, had seen Reed standing in the lighted doorway, and had caught an odd impression of some trifling difference in his appearance. He stood stock-still on the drive, staring at the shut door. Then he scratched his bare head reflectively. "'Ask the gatekeeper?' he muttered. "'Now what in the devil did the fool mean by that, and him laughing when he said it? And what was it about him now? Oh, his hand!' That hand had been out of its pocket at last, and it had been large, white, furry. "'To keep a glove on one's hand is not strange,' thought Cullen, but why the like of that white fur one? Mr. Reed, Mr. Reed, tis a man of mysteries you are, both small and large, and I do not like you. But your daughter—' It was hard enough to follow the path in the dark, and twice he thought he had lost his way. At last a gleam of light ahead resolved itself into the gaslight on the pike outside. Against its yellow radiance the gates hung, an elaborate silhouette, and he could see the red sheen of the ivy-covered lodge. Then, as he came toward it, a slight sound came to his ears. Straining eyes dazzled by the light beyond, it seemed to him that in the side of the lodge facing the grounds a door stood open. Yes, there was an oblong blackness there, blacker than the shadowed ivy about it, and near the center of the oblong a whitish oval patch. A face? It disappeared abruptly and when Cullen came up to the little lodge there were only a closed door and silence. Any windows there might be were hidden by the clinging ivy. As the gates were unlocked, Cullen had no desire to disturb Reed's repulsive servant. The gates opened at a touch, and he went his way. End of chapter 16「